Stay tuned for The Lynn Show. Today, I'm airing an interview I did with press agent Susan L. Schulman. And although Susan's career has encompassed press agenting for virtually every kind of artist, performer, writer, etc., the bulk of her work has really been as a theater press agent. Her first book, Backstage Pass to Broadway, True Tales from a Theater Press Agent, was a very big success. And so the second edition has just been released, subtitled More True Tales from a Theater Press Agent. And it includes stories about all the Broadway shows and theater professionals for whom she has handled publicity, including Mary Martin, Lauren McCall, Robert Redford, David Merrick, Zero Mistel, Glenn Close, Mike Nichols, to name a few. Lots of kids grow up thinking that they know what they want to do. Few kids grow up thinking, I want to be a press agent. And Susan didn't either. But everything that she was drawn to, that she did spontaneously and reflexively, was clearly leading her to this career, which, of course, she didn't always know existed. It's a very, very interesting story. So hang on. Here come the show.
welcome to The Lynn Show. The Lynn Show is about being the person you really are. Not the person you think you have to be. Not the person other people are. Not the person somebody may have told you you had to be or even told you you were. Not even the person you may currently think you are, but the person you really are. Unfortunately, many people have experiences in their childhood which discourage them from being the person they really are. They exhibit or demonstrate an interest, a talent, a curiosity, which for one reason or another does not go down well with their family of origin or with a teacher or with some religious organization. And they are told in one way or another that that is not okay. Children are very flexible. And when, um, when a particular behavior has brought an unpleasant consequence, they are perfectly capable of trying to pretend that they don't have that behavior or that curiosity or that interest. And many get so good at the pretense that they come into adulthood having forgotten some important things about them. And then there are people who, from the very beginning, are drawn to what will make their lives work. In my shows, I interview people who make their living or their life with an art, because when you listen to them, you can hear what it sounds like to be who you really are. And Susan Shulman is an example of someone who was drawn to what she was going to become long before she knew that what she was going to become existed. So this is a very articulate woman talking about a very interesting journey. Here now is Susan L. Schulman. So I'm here with Susan Schulman, press agent, public relations person, and I'm explaining to Susan that I interview people who make their living or their life with an art. And you are the first public relations person I have ever interviewed. So this will all be new to me, the art of public relations, right? Okay. Yes. And I only ask one question. Do you remember and can you tell me the very first time that this kind of thing became interesting to you? Promoting, telling stories, I'm not even sure how to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Do you know? Yeah, I think I do. I grew up in New York and I was a theater kid. My parents took me to my first Broadway show when I was five and a few years later I saw Peter Pan with Mary Martin and I was kind of hooked. But I certainly didn't know that there was such a thing as a press agent. I just was caught up in the magic of it and then as I grew up I was in plays. And Is it primarily press agent for theater? In the theater the person that publicizes a show is the press agent. It's more than that. What we do is beyond just publicity. We're involved with the marketing, we're involved with the advertising, we're involved with the overall image, both visually and emotionally, of a show. Wow, but so, so it is primarily theater for you? No, I also handle other things. I handle books and individual actors and dance and cabaret. I do lots of things. Okay, but it started with an interest in theater. I think so, yes. Yeah. And, and also, the, nobody knows what a press agent does. No, yeah. Nobody. Nobody. Um, doing it. But what the most important thing that I think that we all do is that we create the right expectations for a show. I'm talking particularly about theater now. But it's true of everything. So that if you go to the theater and you're expecting apples. Right. And you get oranges. Yeah. They may be the best oranges in the universe, but you're not going to be happy. Right. Because you went expecting apples. Right. So 
my job is to create the right expectation wow. before somebody walks into the theater, before somebody buys a ticket. If you go see something that's, say, I'm just being silly, but say it's being promoted as a laugh riot. Right. And it turns out to be Ibsen. Right. You're not happy. Right. Now, the Ibsen may have been fabulous. Yes. But your expectations weren't met. Right. And so part of my job, and I think one of the most important parts of, of what a press agent or a PR person does, is create the right expectations. And that could be about a product, it could be about a play, it could be about a, an actor, it could be about anything. Right. Um, and the other part about being a press agent is that people don't realize how much, how, how involved we are in the creative process, because it doesn't sound like a job that would be. Yes. But I have been involved with many shows where... I'll be sitting in a rehearsal and I'll make a suggestion or I'll make a comment or I'll express an opinion. And if the people who are the other creators are receptive, and not everyone is, right. I have to say, but, but the smart ones are, the good ones are, they're interested in what people think. And particularly right. people that they know come to them with knowledge. And right. obviously I've been doing this for a long time and I do know what I'm talking about. And so I, have, I can point to specific moments in shows, which I'll never tell, but I can, I can point, point to a particular number in a, in a big hit musical where that number actually came to be because of something that I said and did. Yeah. And it shows up in more than just a release or an interview or right. something like that. But it also could show up in an image that's selected for yeah. a show. Mm -hmm. Because people never say, the reason I saw that show was because of the poster, Correct. the window card. They never say that because nobody thinks that way. But the fact is, you, you see an image of something, whether it's, again, whether it's a, a Broadway show or whether it's a movie or a, or a book cover, there's something about it that interests you, that, that captures your imagination. When they do polling in the theater and they say, why did you buy your ticket today? And they say, you know, suggesting a friend, you know, advertising, no one has ever says the window card. Right. Because people don't know that the window card influenced them. So even something like a window card, which is very important. I'm one of that's the people right. that's weighing in on an image. I'm the, one of the people that says, I don't think that's the right image, or I do think that is going in the right direction, but maybe if we shaped it a little bit more right, in this direction. Right, 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 right. So that I'm actually very much a part of that creative process. Yes. I'm also part of the creative process in terms of deciding what it is that we're selling and who we think we're selling it to. Right. And sometimes it's a very corporate decision with, say, a Disney show where they call all the shots and they make all the decisions and, that's, and they do it very well, so you can't criticize it because right. they do it really well, but it's very corporate. Whereas uh, sometimes another show, I'll say, I think the person that we should be putting all our energies and our promotion and our efforts behind is this person who is going to be discovered in this show. And maybe my campaign suggestion will be, let's not pitch this person for interviews before the show opens. Let everybody come and discover him or her. Mm -hmm. And let, let's make a star. And then, then let the world discover this person who clearly has it, That's you know, great. has the goods. So there's a tremendous amount of creativity involved with what I do. It's not just writing releases and pitching interviews and, and you know, approving copy and stuff like that. Okay, so I think you were going to tell me where you think it started, and you began with being a theater kid. Right, right? I was a theater kid, and when I was in high school, I used to hang outside stage doors, and, but I was one of those people that didn't want an autograph. I didn't care if they signed my program. I wanted to say thank you for impacting my life ah. and what I discovered and it wasn't manipulative I really meant it I was I mean I was like 12 or 13 or 14 but people responded to they that. loved it and they loved it and who you know who wouldn't that's right Who wouldn't love a, a kid who clearly means it right and thinks you're a god you right. know I mean yeah. who wouldn't want that 
So I would get invited, you know, to go backstage at shows and stuff, which to me was like, you know, Uh it was heaven, you know. And so, you know, I began to see that this was real, you know, that I, but I still had no idea that I could ever be a part of it. It was inconceivable. I didn't know anybody. I didn't come from from entertainment background at, at all. My mother was a psychologist. My father was a businessman and a chemist, you know. Showbiz, no showbiz. No, but they clearly loved it, or they wouldn't have they taken lo- you. They right. loved, they, they loved, loved the theater, right, and right. they grew up during the depression. They didn't have any money, and when they were first married, my mother said to my father, "Let's go to a Broadway show," and he said, "We can't afford a Broadway show." Well, in those days, there, there was a drugstore somewhere that was kind of the precursor of the ticks booth yeah, with right. discount tickets, and evidently, you could go to this ticks booth and you could get a ticket for fifty cents. <laughs> I know, and they would sit in the last row of the balcony. And they would see Broadway shows. Yeah. And so they loved it. And then when we were, my brother and I were old enough, they shared that love with us. Okay, uh, wait, wait. So did you think of being an actor? Did you think of being in it? I was in shows in high school. I was in shows in college. I did some community theater. I did a little summer stock. But in my heart of hearts, I always knew that I wasn't tough enough and probably wasn't talented enough. But I loved it. I mean, yeah. I loved performing, and I would get discovered once in a while, and then, you know, nothing would ever happen. I always knew that wasn't the way it was going to happen. What did happen was that any time I did a show in high school or in community theater, I always seemed to be the one that would go out and beat the bushes. <laughs> so I think I had the gene. I yeah. think I had the press agent gene all along. Mm-hmm. And, and in high school and, and college more, um, I I think that I kind of saw the way that you could help promote. I mean, I was once in a community theater production in Westchester, and I remember saying, "Let's all go down to the train station and sing a song as the commuters get off the train, <laughs> and we can sell tickets." Right. Well, I mean, you know, I was, yes, probably, right, right. I was like fifteen or something, yeah, you know. Right. So you were inventing it. I think I had the gene. Yeah. No, yeah. you were inventing. Well, it wasn't that interesting, but it wasn't no, no, that it wasn't. creative, but it was good for no, a 15-year-old. Absolutely. I think in it was, Pelham, New York. Actually, <laughs> I think it was very creative, yeah. and, and I think you were designing this career at, at really... Who knew? Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. So how did it happen? I went to NYU. I graduated with a bachelor's in theater and English, which turned out to be perfect, but, right. you know, who knew? So what were you thinking? I don't know what I thought. <laughs> I don't know. No, you were just following what you that's were interested what you did. in, that's right? That's what you did. Well, no, people did not just no, major no, but, in but theater. No, but I mean, that's what I was interested in. Yes. Yeah, I mean, right. I, was, I knew I could write. I knew I was a good writer, and I knew that I loved the theater. Mm-hmm. And so and, and so this was the practical solution. Right, right. And I think probably in the back of my head, I thought I could teach. Or I don't know. I mean, this was a long time ago. So, you know, people, you know in my generation were raised to be, you know, mothers and teachers and nurses, right. you know, mm-hmm. not press agents so much, although nobody objected to it. So anyway, I graduated from college and my first job was Lincoln Center Inc., which is the parent organization for Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. And I was a lackey. I was a little, I mean, I couldn't even type. That's how useless my <laughs> college education was. I was so dumb. I didn't even know what department I was going to be in or who I was going to work for. And it turned out just by sheer chance that I worked for the man who was the press director for Lincoln Center and I was his assistant. He was wonderful. He was the world's best first boss. He could see that I was bright and that I learned and I couldn't type but I learned. I worked at it and he used to tease me and one of the things I had to do was write public service radio spots for all the things going on at Lincoln Center and all the New York City Opera and the New York City Ballet and, and, and I learned how to do it. And then I had to type stencils. I had to type five stencils, one for each of the constituents. And in those days, for for your listeners who are old enough to remember stencils, 
if you made a mistake, you put a little blue glob of stuff over it, and then you could type over it. That was like correct type, except on stencils. And so I would type these stencils, and I would have a million blue, <laughs> blue blobs because I it was right, a terrible right, typist. Right, right, right. And he, he was very sweet, and he, one day, and, and he, was, he humored me, and he said to me, the day you do all five stencils with no blue dots, I will take you to lunch. So now I had an incentive, yeah. right? And I'm very A type A, you know, driven person. So, and I used to try so hard, and then I get to the last line, I'd take <laughs> and I blue dot. And one day I did all five stencils with no blue dot. They were perfect. And I went to his office and I put the stencils on his desk. I didn't say anything. I just put them on his desk, and he looked at the stencils and he looked up at me and he said, "Twelve <laughs> thirty." So I learned, and at the end of about a year and a half, Lincoln Center had a cutback, mm. and they had to let me, among other people, go. And I was the first one because I was the last one in, so I was the first one out. But they felt guilty because they liked me, mm -hmm. and I had done good. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> they, uh, they felt guilty. So they helped me, and they, they made calls for me, and they, they, you know, helped me. And I wound up getting a job in a, press, in a, a theater press agent's office. <laughs> It was somebody who handled one of the shows at Lincoln Center. And it was kind of a logical next step. And so that was my first job in a theater press office. Yes, you never chose this. Well, I think I lusted after it. No, no, no. I what I mean is I didn't that know you, how to get there. Well, it, it doesn't even sound like you knew where it was. I did know where it was. And that's the interesting thing was there's something in Playbills that we call the back of the book. And the back of the book is where you see the listing for all the the staff of the show, the, the stage managers, the, the wardrobe assistants, people, right, right. The, the people that make the props. This is, and I was a great, I was very interested in all this because this, yeah. these were the people that made it happen in my mind. So I wasn't just the people on the front of the book, which are like the director and the choreographer and the actors. It was, it was these other people, and I was interested in that. And so I used to read all that very studiously, and I was very interested. So I knew who all those people were. So I knew all the players. I knew who all the producers were. I knew all the, the company managers and the general managers. I knew their names. I didn't know who they were right. face to face, but I knew their names. And so when I first started working in a press office, I had, like, I was 10 steps ahead of everybody else because right. I knew all the players. Right. So somebody would mention a name, and I didn't have to say who's that. I knew who that was. Right. And in fact, uh, just a sidebar, a little bit later, not too much later in my career, I worked for a few press agents and little, I was like, I wasn't even apprenticing to the union, I was just kind of low man on the totem pole. And I went to a, a very well-known uh, independent bookstore in New York called The Drama Bookshop, mm -hmm. uh, which is where I'm doing a book launch event actually from my new book. And the Drama Bookshop, was in a, in a sort of office building on 52nd and uh, 7th Avenue. And everybody went there. I mean, that's where you bought plays, and it was just a great place. And you could hang out, and people would, they were, they were very knowledgeable. And I was going to the drama bookshop, which, say, was on 5. I, I don't remember what floor it was on. And for some reason, the elevator opened, like, on 3. And as the door opened, I see a big sign that says, Bill Dahl and Company. And because I was the little girl that read the back of the book, I knew that Bill Dahl was a very big theater press agent. Mm -hmm. So I get off the elevator, I walk into the office, I say, hi, can I leave a resume? Now, I don't know why I even had a resume with me. I, I, I don't even know, but I did. Mm -hmm. And they looked at my resume, and because I had worked at a couple of other press offices by that time, they said, 
can you can you wait a few minutes? I said, sure. Where was I going? I was going to the drama bookshop. <laughs> and they said, can you wait? I said, sure. And about five minutes later, they said, Bill would like to meet with you. <laughs> they take me to, the, to, to Bill's office in the back. I, I sit down. I talk to Bill. And he says, can you start tomorrow? <laughs> so I got, which turned out to be the show that sort of set me on the path, which was Applause, which was my first big show. Yeah. And it was because the elevator opened on the wrong floor. Now, I was also prepared. Yes. Why did I have a resume? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, You know, did I have the credentials they needed? Evidently, I I had just been doing exactly what they were looking for. Evidently, somebody had just quit, like, that morning, and I was in the right place at the right time. But it was because when the elevator opened, I knew who Bill Dahl was. That's right. That's right. So, go figure. Okay, so, I'm assuming that you were doing, in between... Lincoln Center Inc., mm-hmm. right, and right. Bill Dahl. Right. Were you hopping? Were you, I mean... Yes, well, what would happen was, because when you're working in a press office, um, you're hired basically to work on a specific show. Yes. And if the show closes, you're out of work. The job's over. The job's over, unless the, the press agent has a lot of shows and they can put you on another show. Right. So sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, but when you're low man on the totem pole, chances are you're out. Right. And so I remember somebody once looked at my resume and they said, gee, you've had an awful lot of jobs for somebody. And I said, well, that's the nature of the beast. You know, the show closes, you're out of work. And so I did have, you know, I worked in a lot of different, not a lot, but, you know, four or five different press offices before I kind of um, finally was able to apprentice to the union and then get into the Well, okay, hold on, you're getting ahead of it. Okay. Okay. So um, when the show closed, Mm -hmm. does that mean you have to go looking for work? Yes. So you would go to the, so at this point, um, after, after the Lincoln Center thing and after mm-hmm. applause, mm-hmm. are you thinking, this is what I want to do with my life? Oh, yeah. I knew it right away. Yeah. I, I thought, oh, my God, this is everything that I wanted. In fact, years later, I was working for a very important press agent on Broadway, one of the top people. And we used to go in and out of all of our shows on a Wednesday matinee day before the shows, we used to call it covering the shows. And we'd go, we'd go to, you know, sort of take everybody's pulse and see what was going on and check it out before the show, like at half hour. And we, he and I were going in and out of all the stage doors, like in Schubert Alley and stuff. And he looked at me and he said, you just love it, don't, don't you? <laughs> and I said to him, I do. And I said, but don't ever make fun of that because I never could imagine that I would ever walk into a stage door and have someone say, hi, Susan. That, to me, was, like, impossible. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I'm actually part of this world and, and you know, kind of a known commodity mm-hmm. is absolutely amazing. Yes, and you're part of the world in the way that you want it to be. Absolutely. It's, and and, and the fact that I, you know, and, and he was sort of teasing me, sort of admiringly, but also teasing me, right. and I said, don't you make fun of that. No. Because that really is the most amazing part of this. That's right. You that know? is exactly right. And I, and I still feel that yeah. way. Yeah, okay, all right. So, But I, I want to go back. So, so, okay, it's Lincoln Center, and then it's applause, mm-hmm. and then you, you, do, uh, you, work, you go somewhere, you apply, you get a mm-hmm. job, you work mm-hmm. on a show, mm-hmm. the show closes, you go somewhere else, you apply, <laughs> right. you work on a mm-hmm. show, the show closes. Mm-hmm. All of this happens, mm-hmm. and then you wind up at Bill Dahl. Right. No, Bill Dahl was the applause. That was the Bill Dahl. No, I had only worked in maybe two or three small press, uh, two or three press offices. Oh, I see. Applause. I see. Okay, right. And then when applause happened, and do you want to know how applause happened? Yes, absolutely. That was, that was also kind of a cool thing. So I'm I'm the little kid in the Bill Dahl office, and I'm doing, you know, some 
publicity on all of his projects. He had lots of different things. He handled the circus and all sorts of, he handled Silly Putty. I mean, he had all sorts <laughs> of fun accounts. And he had this new show called Applause starring Lauren McCall. And it was a big deal. And it was written by Compton and Green and music by Adams and Strauss. It, and it was directed by Ron Field. It was a big deal. And all of us were working on the show. Everybody in the office was working on the show. We'd all go to rehearsals. We'd all pitch interviews. We'd cover interviews. We were all involved. And uh, uh, Betty Bacall was tough. And she desperately wanted to do well in the show. But she was, she'd had a bad time. She, this was after Bogart had died. She'd been sort of thrown out of Hollywood. And, you know, she went from being the queen of the Rat Pack to being nothing. And she moved to New York. And this was her... This was her dream to be on Broadway, to star in a musical. She, she knew she had limited singing ability, but she loved it and she really wanted to do well. And everybody was a little bit scared of her because she was tough, mm-hmm. um, but also a, a, a big pussycat too. But, but her persona was, yeah, don't you know, mess with me. Right. And so if she would ask somebody if something was done, they would just say yes. Because, Whether it was or not. Because it was easier to, right. to not evoke her wrath and then she would find out it wasn't done and she would kill them right so i in with the with the naivete of youth because i was a kid i was about 23 uh, she would ask me if something was done and i would say i don't know i'll find out and if it isn't done i'll fix it and it, i wasn't being manipulative no i, I, know I didn't you know any other way right, to do it right. i mean i really wasn't I, I was just a kid and the next thing i knew i get called into the producer's office and they said Betty has just told us that the only person she will deal with or speak to in the Bill Dahl office is Susan Shulman. <laughs> so at the ripe old age of 23, oh my God. I wound up handling what became the biggest hit show on Broadway. Wow. And it was because I was honest. Yeah, right. I wasn't trying to finagle. Some years later, one of the other press agents said, how did you, how did you manipulate that? I said... I could barely get my clothes on right side out. You know, what do you mean manipulate? I didn't know how to do that. I, right. I'm not sure I still, I do now, but yeah. I certainly didn't know at 23. Yeah. But I was honest. Right. And she knew it. Right. And it, that began a sort of lifetime friendship with her. She was very good to me, and I adored her. I know all the stories. I know she could be tough. I know she was, you know, not so nice to some people over the years. And I, and I saw some of it, but it was never directed at me. And I think... Part of it was she knew I was very protective of her, which I was. Yeah. And the other was I think she knew I was a little kid and I would have crumbled. Yeah. And then she would have had to deal with that. But in applause, she was very happy because it was a very happy time in her life. And mm-hmm. I think she always associated me with that happy time. And uh, until a few years before she died, every time I'd see her, I'd say, I, I'd see her on the street or, you know, at an event. And I, and I always introduce myself because I never presume right, people. Right, of course. Uh, right, I mean, right. we all know a million people. You know, it's hard to remember everybody. And so I always say, hi, Betty, it's Susan Shulman. And she'd say, I know who the hell you are. And, <laughs> and then she'd give me a hug and a kiss, right. you know, because she did. And because I think that I was just a part of a very happy time. Yeah. Okay. So applause essentially um, puts you on the map. Yes. And then what do you do with that? Well, again, I was on applause and I was working on other projects in the Bill Doll office as well. And as a result of that, I was offered a job at um, Channel 13, which is the local, mm-hmm. became the local PBS station. It wasn't PBS then because right. it was a long time ago. And I was offered this job and it was at a time when Bill's other shows were, cl- were closing and so they had to let people go. And I thought, oh, this will be fun. So I moved over to Channel 13 and I was there for maybe a year or so. 
and then I got another job in the theater, and so, but by that time, you, you're kind of a known commodity, so it turns out that people sort of, when you put it out there that you might be available, they, you know, people make you offers. Right. So it's not, it gets easier. And then, as I say, eventually, I apprenticed to the union. There's a, a theatrical press agents and managers. Is our, How do you do that? Um, you have to be on a show, and you have, to, you have to work for a certain number of weeks per season, for three seasons. So you have to work 20 weeks, a se- 20 weeks under contract for three seasons, and then you have to take a test. And then you get into the union, and then you could very well be unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Your, your credential. Congratulations. Your right, Thank you. Right, right, Welcome right, to right. the union. Right. You're unemployed. Um, and so I then became what's called an associate, where you work for a senior press agent who is the person that goes out and gets the shows, and you're their associate. So you often handle the show, but it's the senior that goes out and gets the job from the producer. Okay, was it more difficult to get that kind of work? Um, um, it, no, it turned out it was easy. I mean, as I said, because by that time I'd been around and I'd worked in a lot of several offices and people knew who I was. Right. And, and people liked me and they thought I was capable. So, you know, sometimes a, a, a producer would say, well, why don't you hire Susan as your associate on this show? We like her. Yeah. You know. Right. So I was an asset to uh, the people that I worked with. So that was great, you know. And, and then eventually, if you can... Um, a lot of, not a lot of people, but some people decide to go out on their own and become the senior press agent and then get their own shows, and that's what happened. Is that what you did? Is yes. that what you're saying? Yes. So yes. when did you do that? I did that in 1978. Wow. Yeah. And my I, God. I know. So I'd been doing it for a while there, and I, and then at 78, I opened my own office, and I did it for about 10 years. No, not 10 years, a little less than that. And then in the mid-80s, the theater was going through a very rough patch, and um, money was very tight, and people were would hire me for shows, and then they couldn't get the money together, and then it wouldn't happen, and things like that. And out of the blue, and I mean literally out of the blue, I got a call from somebody at CBS Television, who turned out to be the head of press information, vice president of press information, but I didn't really know who he was. I, I didn't know who he was. And he said, I have a reorganization plan in mind, and there's one piece of it that's missing. And I've heard about you, and I think you might be the missing piece. Wow. Would you come and talk to me? Well, you know, this doesn't happen. No, I know. Because most people look at your resume, and they only see what, see they what, they, what you've already done. They right. can't visualize that, say, skill that you have in, in theater is transferable to television. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So I went to see him, and they made me a wonderful offer. And I thought, okay. And I decided to do it, and I turned away business, and I ended clients, and I shut up my office, and I moved to CBS, and hated it. Oh, 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 oh. dear. Yes. Day one, I remember calling my mother up and saying, (laughs) I've made a mistake. And she said, how could you know? You have to give it. I said, I know. Mm. And I did. I did. And I lasted nine horrible months <laughs> hated every oh minute learned a lot mm-hmm. learned a lot hugely uh, interesting in some ways but I wasn't really prepared for a big corporate uh, experience and I had no I didn't know how to do it I right. mean I, I knew how to do the job very right. well oh no I understand but I didn't know how right. to play the corporate game at all and after uh, nine months of going home and crying every night I um, was offered a better job 
and uh, more money and everything else at um, USA Network, which was then a cable network with four hours of original programming a week. And during my wow. four years there, we went from four hours of original programming to, to 24 hours original programming. And it turned out to be kind of fun and challenging and interesting. And then after USA, I went to A&E, Arts and Entertainment, and had pretty much the same job, head of, head of the PR department there at A&E for another two years. Wow. And at the end of six years in television land, I came back to the theater. Wow. I thought, I don't, I made a lot of money, but I don't like this. Yeah. And so is that what you, when was that? That was in the mid to late 80s. Oh. And I, so I came back and I worked as somebody's associate for about three or four months. And I remember Jerry Schoenfeld, who was the head of the Schubert organization, called yeah. me up one day. We were, I was working on a show that was one of their shows. And he said, why are you not back out on your own? We'll give you shows. And I thought, okay, why aren't I? <laughs> why aren't I back out on my own? And, and so I did. And I did go back out on my own. And since then, I've, I've had my own office. So Again. Um, so how did you expand to authors and cabaret people and all that? Sometimes it came over the transom by referrals, and sometimes I would see somebody and I'd think, I could really help that person, and I would go after it. I would go after them. I would send them a letter and, you know, or find somebody that knew them, or I'd see who their agent was, and maybe I knew the agent or the manager or something. Um, and somebody I really thought was on the cusp of stardom, mm-hmm. and that, and you I, could push could, that I could really help them. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yeah. no, really, and yeah, that yeah, I yeah, felt yeah. a real connection to. Yeah. And, um, and so sometimes, so, so it was kind of a mixture of things. Sometimes it was things I went after, and sometimes it was, it was referrals. Okay. And by that time, of course, you know, I'm kind of a known commodity, right. so, um, you, you know, if somebody thinks of you in a certain way, then they yeah. think. And interestingly, the kind, I'm not a killer, and I don't really want to work with killers, and interestingly, the people that seem to want to work with me are genuinely lovely human beings, mm-hmm. and um, they don't want to work with a killer. And I don't want, you know, what yeah, I mean? so, right, right, right. so it's it's very interesting because, I, for instance, I work with someone with a wonderful actress named Kathleen Chalfant, who your your audience may know, and she was in Wit and Angels in America, and she's just a wonderful person, and she's a wonderful person off stage as well as on as being a wonderful actress. She's very. Uh, socially committed and politically and she's just a terrific person and um, she's somebody who, who when her agent said I think you should have a personal press agent she said oh no mm-hmm. uh, and he said I'd like you to just meet with Susan just just talk to her just and she, she told me later she said in a million years I never thought I'd hire a personal press agent because it was so it was such an anathema to me that to do something like that it was so you know me 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 and she's not like that mm-hmm. and she said but when I met you, I thought, oh, this is somebody I could actually be work. friends with mm-hmm. and, and right, work right, with. Right. And I felt the same way. Because mm-hmm. it has to feel that way. It has to feel like it's a good fit right. on both sides. You yes. can't just be, you know... No, you can't, you can't really do what you do for someone you don't like. Well, you can, but, it's, but I don't well, want to. Well, not you. But I don't want no, to. No, you can't. No, I, I, <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I have to say, I, I'm, I'm not a saint. And I have, I have handled things that I thought were less than wonderful prod, you know, mm-hmm. shows. I mean... But I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, too. Mm-hmm. I always think it's going to be great. You know, maybe it didn't read so well on the page, but, you know, when they get on stage, it's going to be great. You know? And I do. I think that way. You're a cheerleader. Yeah, I, well, I, I am, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that is what I do. But, mm-hmm. but I really do think that. You know, I think 
I think, well, you know, I have some questions about this. I mean, this is, is you know, but, but maybe it's going to be good, yeah. you know. <laughs> and sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Right. But, but I do, I always, I never take something on and think, oh, this is just crap. You know, right. I, 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 I can't just hate this. No, no. Right. no. <laughs> no I, can't, I can't bear it, you know. Okay, I, so tell me about the book. Well, um, for years and years, I've told people stories about things that went on in my shows. And, mm-hmm. you know funny things, horrible things, sad things, nutty things. And everybody would say, I hope you're writing this stuff down. And I didn't because I was so busy doing it that right, I right, never right, really right. thought about, I just thought, well, who would care? But all my friends, I mean, this went on for years. People would say, you really should be writing this down. And once in a while I did. Once in a while I would sort of document something and, and because it would be so nutty and I'd think no one will ever believe this. So I better write it down. And one of the things that I actually did write down was about a production that I handled called The Merchant. And The Merchant was a play that Zero Mostel died during. Oy. Yeah. So, but the but the the backstory is that it was one of those productions where if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. Mm. So, from day 1, it was kind of a catastrophe. And it was just one which of the, which culminated in Zero so, dying, right? So, eventually, after a series of catastrophes that went on and on and on and, and you know as I say we kept saying there's this little black cloud over this show that's traveling from city to city things like doing engagements out of town before a show comes to Broadway you create posters you know window cards right. with, with dates on them so you say I'm going to be in Philadelphia these dates and I'm going to be in you know Washington these dates and everybody in the universe checked it and everybody looked at it and it turned out the dates were wrong so instead of it being Monday, March 1st, it ter- would turn out that March 1st was a Tuesday or something. So it was just wrong. Right. Everybody looked at it. The advertising agency, the press agents, the producers, the general managers, yeah. the company managers, the, everybody looked. Nobody saw it. Um, that was just a little teeny thing. Right. But it was just one of a million teeny things that added up to this just being a catastrophe. So by the time we get to Philadelphia, they had never actually fully... Uh, rehearsed the entire show. They hadn't had a chance to have a run through because it was a very big play. And um, so we all went down to Philadelphia for the first preview, which was over four hours. Thank you very oh much. Oh my goodness. Yes. Uh, but we were also relieved that it had actually gotten on the stage because it, it just was, you know, like things were falling <laughs> over and it was nobody knew their line. I mean, it was just terrible. Not nobody, but some of them, including Zero Mustel. And it was just, you know, it was a train wreck and we couldn't. We couldn't believe that, we, that it was actually on the stage. It was over four hours, which, of course, on Broadway you cannot do because that incurs overtime, and that's big bucks, and you can't do that. So we knew that if the show had a prayer, it had to be cut by at least an hour or more. And so there was a lot going on. And we all met after the show, and we, we were so relieved that it had actually had a performance. And we were supposed to stay, the, the press agent and I were supposed to stay over to Saturday and go to the Saturday matinee and then come back to New York. But we decided the Schubert's offered us a ride back in their limo, and we said, let's go in the limo. So we all, about 2 in the morning, we all got in the car, and we drove back to New York. And the next day, Zero Mustel was at the theater getting ready for the matinee, and he got sick. And he was taken to the hospital. The matinee was canceled. And then they proceeded to do a million tests, and nobody could figure out what had happened. What, did he have a heart attack? Nobody knew. They were just doing a million tests. And about a week later, just as he was being discharged from the hospital, his wife was coming to collect him, 
and uh, we had canceled the Philadelphia engagement by this time because everybody wanted to see Zero Must Ellen, and rightly so. And they had announced that he would resume performances in Washington at the Kennedy Center, which was the next leg of this pre-Broadway tour. And he fell out of bed and died. Oh, my God. Yes. And it turned out, eventually, they figured out that he had gone on one of those liquid diets that were very fashionable in the 70s. Yeah. And he had passed, he lost 100 pounds. Yeah. And he had passed the physical for the insurance. He was fine. But it turns out that he had an aneurysm. And right. that was probably what killed him. Right. So, but the, but the weirdest part of it was when he died, um, in my mind, I kind of went, well, of course he died. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, what, what else? What, what else could go wrong? Which right. is terrible to right. say. But, I mean, it was true because right. it had just been... A, a catastrophe, right? And, and the the funny part was, so I had written I had written this down, and I had always thought, well, if I ever write a book, this is this right. this is an interesting story because right. it's so horrible, and yet there's such there's so many common elements to it that happen in every show. Right. It's just that these were all in one show, one show right? <laughs> and right. spread out in right. five shows. Right. And, and in fact, everybody that worked on that show to this day, we're all bonded because we, we all have yes, scars right, from, right, from right, this right. show. And um, so anyway, so that that story about the merchant and, and the, the whole building up to what happened. And then, oh, I have to tell you the best part. It's not the best part, but what happened was at the final curtain call. So so the, sh- the show, by the way, went on after he died. They they decided to put his understudy into the play, and the understudy opened on Broadway, and it closed in five days. Right. The final performance, the cast was taking their final curtain call. And do you know what a, a fire curtain is in the theater? Yeah. Very, very heavy asbestos curtain. It's supposed to come down in case of a fire to separate the stage from the audience. Right. So I guess if the fire is on stage, the actors can burn up, or if it's right. in the audience, right. then they only the actors. Right. But everybody shouldn't burn up. That's the that's the fire curtain. Okay, which is never lowered anymore because it's except for tests. But they don't. They used to lower it at intermissions on Broadway, but they don't do it anymore. Anyway, as the actors were taking their final curtain call, You're kidding. Out of the corner of their eye, they saw that the fire curtain had started to come down, and which would have killed them. I mean, oh, it's, a, it's a ton. You right, know? right. And, but because it wasn't crashing down, it was coming slowly. They didn't. They saw it, and they pulled everybody upstage, and the fire curtain fell. And Roberta Maxwell, who was one of the uh, leading actresses in the show, said, Zero had the last laugh. <laughs> oh, and that's, that's absolutely true. Oh, that's great. Isn't that creepy? Yes, it's very creepy. And also very funny. Yes. And he, anyway, so that story became the beginnings of Backstage Pass to Broadway. And what happened was that story subsequently was published in a, in a theater magazine. And then I had more of an incentive to start to write down some of the other stories. And so in 2013, Backstage Pass to Broadway was published and did very well. It was one of Amazon's 100 best-selling theater books, which was thrilling. And now I've come out with a second edition which is called Backstage Pass to Broadway, more true tales from a theater <laughs> press agent, she said, being a press agent. And, and it's more fun, interesting tales about some of the really big stars that I've worked with on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And it has just been published, and it has um, and seems to be doing well. It's available on Amazon, and it's available 
at my website, which is backstagepastorbroadway.com, <laughs> cleverly titled. Interestingly, the book has, has brought people, and I didn't write it for that reason. In fact, I was, there were several people that said to me, if you write Backstage Pastor Broadway, you might alienate people because they think you're going to tell tales about them. Right. And the truth is, most of the stories in my book um, are uh, lovely stories. There's mm-hmm. only a few that are about people behaving badly. Oh, right. there, there's a couple. And But I was very careful what I told and what I didn't tell because I told stories of if somebody did behave badly and I told the story, it was because they did it in front of a lot of people. So a lot of people know. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's, there's a story about a particular actress who tried to return to Broadway to, you know, restart her career and she was just terrible to people. And among other things, she threw a chair at the producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, except she did it in front of 50 people. Right, right. So I don't feel talking about right. that. It's, it's not a secret. It's not a secret. And I don't feel that's telling tales at a school. It's interesting, and right. it's kind of juicy and fun. Right, right. Um, I tell stories about Zero Mustel, who mm-hmm. was not a particularly nice person off stage. He was wonderful on stage, but not so much off stage. And, you know, did a lot of things that were unsavory. And he's dead. And he's dead. <laughs> but, um, you know, I worked with David Merrick. David Merrick was a brilliant producer. Unfortunately, by the time I worked with him, he'd had a stroke, and so he could neither walk nor talk. So he had a companion who would interpret what he said. So he was in there, but he couldn't... Uh, oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, so I have one more question. Okay. And it is... I have one more answer. Oh, you probably have more than one more answer. <laughs> you have more than one right, 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 right. So, um, having given a life, and you have given a life, really, mm-hmm. I have to. I want to say gotten a life. Yes, too. yes, mm-hmm. yes. Both ways. But I want to say, being captured by, and embracing, and becoming part of this work Mm -hmm. which is essentially to its service to Mm -hmm. right creation Mm -hmm. primarily in the theater but not exclusively Mm -hmm. in the theater right would you say what that feels like what you Mm -hmm. think about it Mm -hmm. Um, any of that well when I say I gave as well as God I mean that Mm -hmm. because the theater has given me a life and Mm -hmm. both both personally professionally financially uh, uh, emotionally, you know, I feel very much this is this is who I am, yes. and I, and I still love it. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody once said you shouldn't go into the theater unless you can't stand not to go into the theater. Yeah, and I really believe that because we could all make lots more money other ways and probably get lots more acknowledgement. Um, so, it has it has certainly given me a life, and I have also given to it. You know, um, it's interesting the. One of the things that I do is make other people look good. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and I'm good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm good at helping people present themselves well. I'm help I, I I'm good at helping them be comfortable when they're, for instance, going to do an interview like this or, you know, various things I'll do, media training, whatever. And but my job is to make sure that they know where they're gonna go, what they're gonna do, who's gonna be talking with them, you know, how much time it is and, and all the things that will make them go into it feeling comfortable and confident and well prepared. And so when I started to, when, when my book first came out, and I was asked to do interviews, and I thought, <laughs> who's going to do it for that's me? That's right. And <laughs> it was a very strange experience. Mm-hmm. And now I've gotten a little more comfortable with it. But to suddenly be the one in the spotlight and yes. to be the one in the hot seat 
was very strange mm -hmm. and very uncomfortable. Yes. I have to say, very uncomfortable. Yeah. And I really had to sort of rethink the way I saw myself and presented myself and felt about myself because it takes a certain kind of confidence. And, and for somebody that had always been, and not at all resentfully. I'm no, not, the support all, team. But I was always the supporter. You mm -hmm. know, I was always the person that helped other people look good. Yes. And to suddenly be the one, I even once was doing a, a TV taping, a TV interview, and I called up a friend of mine and I said, would you come and be me? And she said, well, I don't know how to do that. I said, yes, you do. Just have my back. Uh, that's what that's what I need you to do. Come yes. and have my back. I want you to look at me on 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 the monitor and see if I'm if if I, if I look okay. Do right. I have a a collar askew? Do yeah. I do I need someone to pull down the back of my jacket? Right. You know, is my hair funny? I need you to be my be my you know team. Yeah. And she said to me, I don't know how to do that. I said, Yes, you do. You're a mom. You know how to you know exactly <laughs> how to do this. And she came, and she was she was me. You mm -hmm. know, she was my me. Yeah. And um, and it was great because everybody needs somebody like that. That's you know, right. and in life too. That's but, right. But but as a as a performer or an actor or whatever, it's very nice to have somebody who's in your corner and is a hundred percent devoted to making you look good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a unique thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that's why press agents and their clients often become friends because not always, but very often because we're there for them. Yes. Interesting. And, and so for you, mm -hmm. what I hear you saying is, and actually what I hear you saying through the entire thing, is from the beginning, from the, from the impulse mm -hmm. as a very young child to tell actors that they did good, that they did well, that you were, mm -hmm. you you yes. appreciated them. Mm -hmm. It was from the very beginning your impulse to support yes. the creative process. I think it was. Right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think I thought of it that way. I just I just loved it, and I thought they were wonderful. And in fact, I have I used to write to people. Mm -hmm. I used to send them, and they weren't really fan letters. They were well, they were, but they were. Me saying basically, you know, I appreciate you and and, I, and what you did touched me in some mm -hmm. way, and they would always answer me. Yes. Because why wouldn't you if somebody writes you a nice letter like that? I mean, most people did. And um, recently, I I had I had this whole book from when I was a little kid, and the letters are wonderful. Yes. I mean, they're just wonderful because obviously, they responded. Yes. To whatever that was. That I was putting out there. Yeah. So well. So what I what again? What I hear is that from the very beginning of your life, you were essentially um, preparing for this mm -hmm. career. That I you guess were, so. You know. Yes. You know. Yes, I probably was in some weird subconscious way. Well, I yes. think that's right. Yes, I, I think that's right. Was and and wasn't I lucky? You know, I mean, how many people do we all know that have had jobs their whole lives and? when they get to the age where they can retire, they can't wait to stop doing whatever it is. Yes. And I'm at that age where I could retire. And I, you know, I could retire financially and I could retire in terms of where I am in life. But I don't have, I'm doing what I love. I don't have something else that I've been pining to do my <laughs> whole life and now I'm free to do. I have friends like that who have taught or have been in corporate jobs. I have one friend that opened a yoga studio you know mm -hmm. this is what she her whole life had been about yoga and she had these very corporate jobs and suddenly she was free to do it right I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing and aren't I lucky actually I think this is a good place to okay. start great 
This has been lovely. Thank well, you thank so you. much, Susan. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. I'm delighted to, you know, tell my tales. Your tales are wonderful. Thank you. And of course, Susan is perfectly right. She is very lucky. Too many people don't get to be who they are and don't get to do what they love. And too many people have to wait too long to be who they are and to do what they love. And she continues to love what she does so she doesn't have to retire because she's living the life that she wants to live. It is my hope that as you listen to Susan, you are asking yourself, is this how I feel about my life? Have I always known what was right for me and what was wrong for me? And have I, have I had the ability or luck to follow that? Well, if you have, I'm happy for you, as I am happy for Susan and all the artists that I interview. But if that's not true for you, if you think that there, were, there was another way you would have wanted to spend your life, or there was an interest or a curiosity or a talent that you may even yearn for, but are reluctant to risk, the Lynn Show is about saying it may not be too late for you to rediscover, to uncover who you really are. So as always, I hope you got something you can use from this show. You see, I'm getting older. My hair is turning gray. Oh, you see my face and figure. I've both seen better days. Well, I won't be retiring. I won't slip out of sight. No. I will not go gentle into that good night. I won't go with a whimper. I am going with a bang. Life's a song I keep on singing, not a tune that I once sang. I just keep returning like some Get on, well I, I won't be relegated or leave without a fight, no, I will not go gentle into that good night. But it ain't over yet Cause me and 
I may have got to 